Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. And hello, hello, top of the morning to you. Uh, this is Zane, and you're listening to Green Left Radio on the ever-awesome and epic activist radio waves of 3CR. Um, now, we've also got Jacob here. Good morning, Jacob. Yeah, good morning. Um, so, um, we have a pretty uh, light... We have well, we have we have a packed program to extend. I mean, there's a lot of news um, to get through, but we do have we're going to have a special interview with uh, with MUA, uh, yeah, MUA got- organizer, about you know the web doc dispute that's currently happening right now. Yeah, and although I don't actually know the actual address for where that um, dispute is happening, but it is happening kind of every morning uh, in kind of a hard to find kind of location around web doc. In um, sort of around Port Melbourne, hmm. um, and then we'll we will be have um, we will hopefully play a recorded interview that was done during the Markson conference uh, last week um, with Bashkir Sankaria. Um, he is uh, the editor of the Jacobin magazine, um, which is quite a popular magazine in the United States. Um, that is, you know, you know, bringing socialist ideas to a very wide audience. Um, and the next, and then we'll be going talking, giving the kind of latest news announcements in between, and we'll hopefully also have an update later during the morning from uh, from Aboriginal activists on the stolen wealth um, gains protests. Yeah, cool. Uh, I guess maybe just, um, while I've mentioned that, I would like to acknowledge um, that FreeCR this morning is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, I like to pay my respect um, to elders past and present and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. Yep. All right, so Zane, do you have any kind of particular news stories you'd like to share in terms of the highlights or something that's in the headlines at the moment? Um, uh, I would be interested in looking up um, some quotes from when um, Jeremy Corbyn went to dinner with this... um, sort of left-wing Jewish group, Judas. Mm. And, um, yeah, so the this 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 group put out a, a little bit of media coverage because in the aftermath of um, Corbyn going to this um, Seder uh, dinner with Judas, um, the, the same people who had been telling Corbyn that he was anti-Semitic and saying that he should meet with Jews... Um, have then turned around and go, oh, not not those Jews, <laughs> and uh, yeah, this group Judas put out some um, a, a little bit of a, like a tweet or some like media release in response to all the controversy, and it is dead set hilarious. It's really it's really tongue in cheek and it's really uh, funny. Yeah. So what did the tweet say? 
Oh, I've got to look it up and find it. But yeah, well, actually, I, I commented a bit, um, bit on that. Yeah, there is this whole kind of um, smear being kind of thrown against Corbyn for being uh, for being anti-Semitic, and it, but it's all kind of on the basis of his actually principled um, support for Palestinian rights um, and the right of um, Palestinian self-determination. And of course, I kind of want to talk a bit briefly about that. In you know, listeners probably heard about. You know, uh, Israel's kind of massacre of peaceful protesters in Gaza on March 30th, and on mm. which 18 people were killed and almost um, 1,500 were injured. And obviously, this has, you know, spread outrage around the world. And of course, anger has been further fueled by what, you know, Israel has said after the attack, in which footage um, showed unarmed protesters being shot in the back as they fled. And, of course, rejecting international calls for inquiry, Israeli Defence Force Minister, or Defence Minister, not the Defence Force Minister, um, Adegovogdor Lieberman, um, instead said that Israeli soldiers deserve a medal. And of course, these um, this uh, incident happened just as thirty thousand Gaza residents gathered near the war, marking um, Gaza's border with Israel. Named the Great Return March, um, the demonstration marked Land Day, the anniversary of the nineteen seventy six killings of the six Palestinians protesting the Israeli con- confiscation of Arab land. And of course, um, these protests were planned um, were the start of a planned six-week um, long non-violent protest against the blockade of Gaza and to demand the right of return for Palestinian refugees. And of course, the six-week campaign will culminate on Al Napka, um, the seventh anniversary of the establishment of the State of Israel, on the back of max expulsions of Palestinians. And I guess in response to these kind of incidents is um, Palestinians are calling for mass protests, um, protests all around the country uh, or around the world, really. Um, the steering committee of the Palestinian Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions National Committee released a statement on April 2 that invoked the global campaign for sanctions against Israeli apartheid. It called for an escalation of boycotts targeting the Israel military and any company that financially profits from Israel, <coughs> Israel's crimes. Um, and so there'll be one such protest happening tomorrow on Saturday at the State Library at 2pm. I um, encourage all our uh, listeners to attend if, um, if you want to, um, to support Palestinian rights. All right. Um, the other news story I wanted to talk about is um, this has been making the um, the headlines recently, but uh, you know the absolutely kind of shameful behaviour of Victorian police um, and how they basically you know assaulted or uh, mistreated. Uh, an, um, so what was it? A... There was a disabled person that was attacked, yes. and then there was also a Sudanese uh, young Sudanese person who. Um, uh, did some kind of shoplifting, and okay, the police will be called in that kind of situation and arrest someone, but the the cops absolutely beat this person to a pulp um, in the in the store. It was completely unnecessary. This mm. person was pinned to the ground. You could put handcuffs on them and take them away. Instead, the cops sat there, laying into him, kicking him, punching him. Um, yeah, mm. disgusting. And what um, what's always problematic is basically kind of the response is um, that the police are going to do an investigation of this. In fact, they'll have their own 
people investigate and investigate, you know, the perpetrators of this crime. Um, and then it's usually likely that they'll get away, you know, scot-free mm. as a result or just get a slap on the wrist. Um, so, as you, you know, the impact as a result of this incident, um, what has happened is a lot of community lawyer um, uh, organisations have, you know, basically called that there is an independent body um, be, um, be implemented to take um, to um, handle these compl- um, these complaints of police brutality, hmm. and and you know because we can't, you know, we can't trust, you know, we shouldn't be um, trusting the police to make their own objective uh, investigations of their of their own um, failings. Hmm. Um, and I think one of the other interesting things is this all kind of politically comes in the context of the kind of Daniel Andrews government. In fact, actually, I would have to criticise the kind of political responses of both. I mean, Matthew Guy, actually, you know, the Liberal Premier, uh, Liberal Opposition Leader, uh, you know, who is calling for a much, who, you know, is pretty hard right wing, you know, actually managed to sound more progressive than... Daniel Andrews in response to the um, the releasing of this footage um, because Matthew Guy basically said, you know, we should all be angry about this, you know, and I, we did, there needs to be an independent investigation of what the police have done. Daniel Andrews, on the other hand, who has basically been pushing this hardline kind of law and order agenda, he's been arguing for more, well, implementing increased funding from police officers. He's also made a net recent announcement that um the um that they were they want um he wants to arm the police with semi automatic um military grade weapons mm. uh he basically said well i haven't seen the footage but the Victorian police are months the best and most well trained in the business basically that's kind of paraphrasing paraphrasing what he said but that is along the lines of what he did say and it is like yeah the fact that Matthew Guy sounded more progressive mm. in that instance is quite bizarre. How could you have not seen the footage? Like, I reckon half of Australia has seen that footage. Like, it's it's, it's well it's to a be honest, like, big thing at the moment. It's going around. Well, I haven't actually. To me personally, I haven't actually watched the footage because I think it would probably be a bit too distressing to watch. And I've just mainly read descriptions of the footage. But yeah. the difference is, you're not the premier of Victoria, and this is not your police force that you're accountable for doing this stuff like i would have thought that that would be a pretty basic thing for the premier and anyone else from the victorian government is to watch that footage and see what happened Mm. because it's kind of a big deal yes (laughs) um so but i think the i guess the positive impact of all this is people are starting to become more conscious i mean one of the one of the issues i guess is a lot of this police brutality actually happens quite often. It doesn't, um, but it usually happens behind closed doors, and it's mm. usually towards Aboriginal and people of colour. And of course, in the mainstream, those kind of stories tend to get marginalised and ignored. Mm, for sure. And another sort of another facet of this story, I guess you would say, is that the when we're talking about investigations being referred back to Victoria Police, so they're investigating themselves. Uh, There was Brett uh, Guerin, who went under the fake profile on social media of Vernon Demarest. This guy was really super racist. Like, he could easily have come from the ranks of... 
Reclaim Australia or the United Patriots Front or one of those far-right groups, this guy, who his work colleagues must have been aware that he was virulently racist. Like, the way this guy behaves on social media, it would be impossible not to notice if you're around this person on a daily basis that he's really racist. Mm. And his peers and Vic Police Management put him in charge of the Victorian Police Integrity Commission. Mm. So... These are this is the sort of hierarchy within the Victorian police that investigates claims that police have been brutal to disabled people or Aboriginal people or, or people of colour. Is they've they've stacked their own investigating arm um, uh, mm. facility with really racist scum. So yeah. I think that underscores what these um, community organisations have been saying, which is that we really need an independent organisation to investigate claims of police brutality. It's absolutely not appropriate at all for the police to be investigating themselves in these instances. Yeah. All right, I think we're getting time for our first interview for the program. Yes, uh, we've got uh, Jeff Hoy, the Assistant uh, Secretary of the Victorian branch of the MUA to talk to us about the dispute down at, at Old Web Dock, 20 years on uh, from the Big Patrick's dispute. Uh, once again, the um, some of the industry bosses, including old um, Chris Corrigan, who, who's recently just left Cube, um, yeah, they're trying to push back against the organised workers on the waterfronts and have an agreement terminated. So, yeah, we'll get Jeff on the phone shortly. Alrighty, welcome back. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. It is 18 minutes past seven, and on the line we have the Assistant Secretary of the Victorian uh, MUA, Jeff Hoy. Welcome, Jeff. Yeah, good day. How we going? Yeah, not too bad. Um, so, um, once again, the Wharfies are on strike down at old uh, Web Dock, uh, and it's it's 20 years on from the uh, the infamous uh, Patrick's dispute. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the, the current strike that's happening and, and the, the factors that have led to this um, yeah, industrial action? Yeah, not a problem. Well, look, let's get one, one thing straight. Uh, this hasn't been aligned to run in uh, run with the 20-year dispute. Uh, the members in this workplace would have loved this resolved two years ago once it went past its expiry date. So any connection in between that is just a bit of media hype and, um, you know, someone putting two and two together and coming up with 28. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, look, it's been one of the weirdest negotiations I've ever been involved in. They don't pay for uh, the employee representatives to um, attend these meetings. Michael Souza has identified that there's been 43 meetings that have taken place over two and a half years. Only two of those meetings out of 43, so less than 5%. They've been paid meetings for the employee representatives. Hmm. Um, the Part A agreement was completed in December 2016. Uh, there's been two Part B negotiations, and your Part B is, Part A is generally your um, national agreement. So the two Part B uh, negotiations were on February 7th and June 6th in 2017, prior to a vote on June 29th, which went 0.43. So the two votes after that, we went out again... Um, 
What did we do? I think it was about November 2nd was the next vote, and it went 25, sorry, 23, 28. Um, we had protected action that uh, had been agreed to. We never took any protected action because we were getting closer in negotiations, as was reflected in the vote. It went to a postal vote from uh, December 7th to December 21st, and it went 25-43 on the postal vote. And the week leading up to the um, the postal vote, uh, employees were allocated 8-hour midnight, 8-hour midnight, 10-hour midnight, 10-hour midnight, 10-hour midnight, 10-hour midnight, 12-hour day shifts. They were the second seven uh, consecutive shifts. So that's what's uh, annoying the workplace, is that they're... Um, it's not automation. They are humans. Um, they've got provisions in their agreement to do four consecutive 10-hour midnights. The company are now doing anything up to four consecutive 12-hour midnights. They believe they can do it because they said that um, I think what they put out to their employees was it, it is also completely inconsistent with the community norms and our ability to serve our customers. Now, if anyone wants to have a look at the fatigue manual for, uh, from WorkSafe, Anyone that's been awake for 17 hours is the equivalent about of uh, being 0.05. Mm. If you work in 7 till 7, 7 till 7, uh, midnight shifts, uh, a lot of people, you get home at about 8 o'clock if you're lucky. Uh, you might wind down in some way, shape or form. Most people are up by about 1 o'clock. You don't sleep well after midnight shifts. And after doing shift work for a period of time, your body's all out of whack anyhow. Mm. So, and, and with this particular workplace, they've had three deaths in 15 years, and one of those deaths that happened in late 2017, uh, sorry, 2007, was on the fourth consecutive 12-hour shift, and he was killed in the last hour of the day. So there's valid reasons as to why they don't want to work this. Um, you know, there's reasons why the company could work around it as well. They've, they've put on about an extra 40 to 50 employees in about the past three months due to the increase in volumes of work. So there's scope there to actually... Work your 10 hours, your 8 hours, the occasional 12-hour shift. Nothing's, no one's saying that they can't do a 12-hour shift. It's just that the company run consecutives and consecutives and um, the employees are co- they just don't want to cop it anymore. They don't want to bury one of their people. And did you say that the company is um, labelling the consecutive 12-hour shifts as being in line with community expectations? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it's interesting. What they do is they send out these letters and I know... Comedy festival started a couple of weeks ago, whatever. <laughs> but you've got to read these letters that uh, these management are sending out to the employees. It's it's sad, but when you read through it, it's just comical. But but and that's the problem. You got this management there that's the, uh, you know, and it's very oppressive management. They've sacked ten percent of the workplace in the previous two years, so that's their way of running it. You know, there's no employer loyalty. You know, to the long term employer, there's nothing but contempt. And that, is that oppressive style of management? You know, Johnny Howard, you know, he'd be taking a Viagra knowing this was going on. Hmm. He'd be loving it. And sadly, you know, it only happens in a small percentage of the workplaces. Like there's 18 workplaces that I oversee. And I've got good relationships with most of the managers in those workplaces because, you know, you've got to have relationships to uh, achieve those conditions of employment that um, and understand where the middle ground is. But with this particular employer... I don't know. You just surround yourself with backslappers, I suppose. You think you're doing a good job. And that mm. just seems to be the environment that's happening there. And can you tell us a bit about this roster, which was, um, I guess, abolished by Cube a couple of years back, and which the MUA are trying to get back, and which feeds into this question of workers doing really long shifts and getting yeah. fatigue on the job and, and on the way home or to and from work? All right. So just for the mathematical side of things, for your listeners... Yeah. 
the way the roster is designed, where you work 18, 20 hours, which is 52 lots of 35. So it's a 35-hour week, of which five weeks are annual leave because they're shift workers. Mm-hmm. So you've got to work your 16.45 and you get the 175 hours of annual leave and you get your 18.20. So at the most, la- most recent labour review, uh, the figures that were supplied by the employer over a 27-week period, uh, 30, 15 out of uh, 20 FSCs were ahead of their hours, with one of them 185, had, 185 hours ahead of his hours. And a third of 19 of the VSEs, now the VSEs are the category underneath the FSC, and they were ahead of um, the 945 with two VSEs that were actually higher than the highest FSE. So what's happened is back in 2014, 2015, and no different with Patrick's at the time in the Balkan General, um, WebDoc got sold off to that VICT mob that's been automated and coming to undercut everyone else's conditions of employment. <clears throat> so while all that development was going on, um, there was only... Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry, early morning. Um, there was only two car car vessel berths over at Westweb Dock, so the cars were getting done out of Appleton Dock and uh, the volumes of work moved down to Geelong as well while the development was going on. But now that development has been completed, the work has returned back to Melbourne. So the work that's okay. going at Geelong has come back to Melbourne. Mm-hmm. You've got the three car berths that are operating out of Westweb Dock. You know, it's a nice, open, wide space so the helicopters can land when you bring in strike breakers. Oh, so, uh, just thought I'd throw that one in. Yeah. Um, at least I call them strike breakers. I know there was another word beginning with this, but you know, you've got to be sensitive to these people. So you've got to apparently look after them for some reason. Well, you're, uh, yeah. you're on 3CR, look. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know, we, I know. We, we're trying no, to stay clear of the F's and C's, but uh, S words are okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so all the work volumes, and that's, that's reflective of not only Cube's um, labour reviews, it's always, uh, like Patrick's and our links, it, it, it's showing up as well. So there's people there to be upgraded there based on volumes of work. Hmm. So we went to um, Commissioner Cambridge up in Sydney on um, March 16th, and Commissioner Cambridge, you know, we, we put forward our position, and there's a pretty good, pretty good. Uh, I think the roster is going to return, and the roster basically is just seven weeks on, where employees work that extra hour each day. So instead of it being a seven-hour shift, it's an eight-hour shift. What's well, meant to be an eight-hour shift, mm-hmm. um, and they uh, they work that extra thirty-five hours over a seven-week period to have that week eight off. Mm. Now, the week eight off is not annual leave, and, and this is one of the other things that I found a little silly coming from the management negotiations. There was a person there that was trying to say, oh, Orphies, you get five weeks annual leave. You get the other six weeks, that means you get 11 weeks off. What more do you want? Um, those six weeks off have got nothing to do with annual leave, mm. <laughs> not, not even close. It's just about you know allowing the body to kind of try and correct itself after... You know, being thrown out on eights, tens, twelves, days, evening, midnights, and all that can be in the seven-day week, yeah. um, because that's what the company do. It just spits you out there. There's no. We used to have an MUA allocator, and having a human allocator, he would factor in what was going on either side of the shift, uh, so that you can manage fatigue. Um, but now it just gets done by something that's called a mic roster. Left links, it's PeopleSoft. So it's just a computer that just spits out allocation and doesn't factor in when they, when they last worked and recovery time after it. Hmm. So the roster will come back. I reckon Commissioner Cambridge will rule in favour and the company's response to us putting an application in for the roster return was um, terminate the agreement. 
So it's very much bat and ball mentality. Now, whether that was an own goal, because um, now it's in, engaging all the unions, because we're not a wrap for having agreements terminated and going back to award conditions. We'll just have to wait and see how it plays out. Yeah, it seems like terminating agreements is the new black for the bosses. The uh, Like you say, the more sort of uh, authoritarian or regressive part of management in various industries, that seems to be their new frontier is just terminating agreements and putting people uh, back on the award. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how it plays out. Like, you know, we know we've got um, the ability to go to protected action to uh, advance our claims and I suppose in some ways there's companies out there that will initially say that uh, as a reaction to try and get an agreement over the line. But with this mob and with uh, a federal election around the corner, um, with a little bit of control in the media, with their connections, it's like they're just trying to poke the bear and just try and entice a fight, uh, try and turn people against each other. Um, you know, no different than a 98 dispute. I remember with the 98 dispute, Peter Reef getting around saying that the Orphies are getting 70000 for working 14-hour weeks. And, um, you know, once the propaganda campaign kicks in, it just, you know... Any lie, it doesn't matter. Any lie can become the truth, uh, depending how it's being spun. Hmm. So that's why we've got to get out there and educate the masses and um, through community radio, through social media, it's a way of actually getting factual information out there as opposed to the old lie campaign that um, usually comes with the propaganda. I see the, um, one of the shipping lines has put out something which is having a bit of a crack at us again. And it's just all, and that's what it is. It's just, you know, crap. It looks like another muscle flexing power by the union bosses emboldened by their merger with the CFMU in a desperate attempt to cover up their own failure to negotiate. <laughs> so this is being pumped out by Shipping Australia Limited, being pumped out by uh, some guy, CEO, Rod Nan. It wouldn't matter if we hadn't amalgamated with the CFMU. Hmm. If, if we were just the pissiest union in the world, whether we were the AMOU or something like that, We'd uh, still probably be um, running this campaign. Yeah, well, the way through that one. In. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit sneaky. Um, yeah, well, as you say, it's it's about the workers doing obscenely long 12, 12 hour shifts back to back. Yeah, and I, I think when you talk about community expectations, there's this other community expectation amongst most ordinary workers that we won this thing called the ADO Day many years ago yeah. and, and it seems to be going the way of the dodo and employers just think it's somehow acceptable or normal to make people to do these, all these back-to-back 10- and 12-hour shifts and just yeah. drive people like they're slaves. Well, that's what I felt like. I know they went to salaries years ago after the dispute, uh, went to salaries on the 18, 20 hours and then all the categories underneath that. A lot of the workplaces moved the composite rates, which were there to, um, I think at the time the formula was used was 50% day, 25% evening shift, 12 and 12% uh, midnight shift, 7% Saturday, 6% Sunday. So mm-hmm. that was a pretty little formula that was used to calculate the uh, hourly rate. I think an uplift factor of about 1.61 or whatever the number might have been at various workplaces was used. Where nothing says anything about those uh, shift extensions. And I think some of the recent correspondence we got back from Cube was that 22% of the 12 uh, were 12-hour shifts. So there's a fair whack of, um, you know, overtime payment that hasn't been considered into that uh, composite rate figure. Um, 
that you know it's just being used and abused now. Now we've got no problem with extensions. So we've got no problem of a shift, you know, increasing beyond uh, eight hours if it's at the beginning, because there's about 19 or 20 start times at Cube as well. So it's not just the three start times; they can start at any time during the day practically. Hmm. And that's so that the ship doesn't have to pay for any uh, balance of costs for idle time and that. So there's a lot of flexibilities that are being given so that they can line it up and uh, make a decent profit, which is what they are doing. So you make all these concessions and then they still try and hide behind, um, oh, well, you paid well. But it doesn't matter if you paid well if your conditions are crap. Because if your conditions are crap, you're going home, you're moody, you're not the same person around your missus, you're not the same person around your family. And it can eventually lead into a marriage breakdown or a breakdown of the family. Hmm. So that's what pisses me off at these people in management positions in a particular workplace can't consider those things and then take some actual duty of care, which you know we've seen what it, where it reads in the Ock Health and Safety Act and that. But like I said, that they just fill themselves with backslappers. They need to take a backward step and just go, hang on, you know these guys might be telling the truth. Maybe we can cop this. And that's the silly thing out of all of this. This agreement is achievable. It's there ready to go. Hmm. But we can't have people across the table um, and, until they start parking their egos and come in there with a balanced view. We're going to get nowhere. And the same crap's going to be peddled out in the media about that. Oh, Wolfies flexing their muscles. Whoops, FM and you and amalgamation. It's yeah, it's, like it's, the, it's the 20th anniversary of the, of the yeah, so, Patrick's dispute, so the MUA have just decided to go on a nostalgia strike for absolutely it. no reason other than to... So know. we orchestrated three EA boats. We orchestrated <laughs> going to protected action where no action was taken. We orchestrated to go two years past our expiry date just to line it up with a 20th anniversary. That's how conniving we are. Yeah. So, <laughs> good good timing, you, comrade. You, <laughs> that, that was it, a very elaborate sort of process. I do, I do speak for your sarcasm and a bit of satirical <laughs> comments along the way, and it's only because you can you can balance up, you know, what is genuine, and um, and I'd like to think that you know over the years I've always had a balanced view as a delegate, hmm. um, and and that's something that we encourage with our delegates. Like we had delegates training last week with seventeen delegates from all different areas. And we tell them, you know, you don't, you're not there to be hostile against management. Anyone that hates management, well, you, you know, you're not doing the best thing. So you've got to find that common ground. You've got to find that balanced view. It's only when you come up against an employer like this uh, where it's going to be a bit of a struggle and you're going to have to go that little bit harder. Hmm. Um, and that's why we'll be building on the numbers that are, are currently there. There's been three weeks where it's just primarily been the Cube, Apple and Dock labour that have been uh, attending there because it's their picket, so you try and grow it organically so that they can embrace it, and they have, they're really, for a workplace that um, has had the shit kicked out of them for the past few years, it's really great the way they come together, and the company's actually driven the membership because there was about 100 members when it went to the EA boat, uh, roll of overs back in December, and now they're up to 138. So the company have actually generated recruitment for the union, not that that was ever the intent, um, but, but we also know the way how this, uh, this employer recruits in the future and I'm pretty sure these strike breakers that are coming in from all different states I'm pretty sure somewhere along the journey they'll end up in uh, you know, move through the system pretty quickly and go from a supplementary to a GWE to a VSC to an FSC um, as a reward for them um, you know, doing what they're doing now Scabs. You know, didn't, end, didn't end well for Judas, as we know, but, um, you know, it is what it is. Hmm. And so 
the Kubrick and that uh, it's not economic to return to the uh, to that um, old roster that was uh, abolished in 2014. Yep. But but it is economic to helicopter scabs. Oh, no. Helicopters. The they left at 4 a.m. this morning. They put them up in apartments at the Docklands. So they're not, you know, they've got no problem splashing cash mm. on uh, people that they want to um, break the picket and um, intimidate their long-term employers. But, you know, the minute... And, and look, you, you can, anyone can go and access the 2016-2017 Cube annual, annual report. And they're not struggling. They are not struggling. They are making hand over fist loads of money. Um, but this is all about control. This is all about, uh, you know, we know where middle ground is, but we don't want the middle ground. We want the upper ground. Hmm. So you wouldn't want to be one of their kids or whatever like that. You'd never get to see whatever you wanted to watch on the TV because you wouldn't get your hands on the remote control, not with these people. Hmm. But even with what you're saying in regards to the hours and the volumes of work, and, the, <laughs> and this, this is the other conflicting thing. Now, their argument in regards to um, the 7-1 roster not returning is it's unsustainable. Uh, there's not enough volumes of work. Yet they've put on an additional, additional 40 to 50 people, and their response to that was, oh, because it's the volumes of work. There's been an increase in volumes of work. We need the labour. Hmm. So you can't have your cat. <laughs> like I said, it's... Yeah, we need 40 or 50 more people doing 12-hour yeah. shifts, you know, yep. days and days in a row. But and under the new agreement, we've got an economic clause... Right, and in the economic clause, it's here so that it's based on work volume. So there's triggers up, triggers down. So if there is any people, <coughs> me, anyone that gets upgraded is upgraded in there for a two year period as a provisional. So if the work is sustained, they become that actual position. If the work drops away, will you go back to the original position? The same thing applies in regards to the roster. So if the FSCs aren't getting their hours in the future, if a similar situation occurs. That happened back in 2014, and mind you, 2014 only happened because of the development of WebDoc. Hmm. Uh, but if that situation did occur, there's provisions in the new agreement to um, go back to the um, take the roster out. Yeah, right. So there's a parachute there in protection, ready to go. They don't have to negotiate it. It's hmm. there, ready to go. But yeah. because this is all about, no, we want our control. We like having our foot on the throat of our employees, and that's the way we're going to run it. And that's all it is. And uh, so, how can people get along and um, show their support this weekend and and going forward? Uh, well, you can visit the assembly, which is at the entrance of Marat at forty six Karinga Way, Port Melbourne, at any time to show your support. It's a twenty four hour assembly. Your presence in solidarity solidarity at this assembly will be very much appreciated as this dispute ex- escalates, which it most likely will. And um, look, we've got there's ample food there. Um, obviously, it's a it's a dry ticket, in, so don't go thinking you're going to come here and having a, having a drink of that. No different than a '98 dispute. We ran a dry ticket back there to um, have a bit of a chat. There are we have got you know people from all different sides of life, including including the local community. They can't believe that they're revisiting this from 20 years, hmm. and and that's the other thing about the 20 20 year anniversary. <laughs> it's a time we didn't want. Hmm. We're not celebrating the time uh, that we, uh, you know, we want to recognise because there's not many like what happened 20 years ago. No hmm. one wanted to be thrown out on the, you know, the street and um, not knowing if you were going to go back in or not. So it's hardly, it's it'll be sad for a lot of people as we celebrate the 20 years. So it's a little bit conflicting. Yeah, this is still going on. So like if anyone's having an anniversary celebration, it's the bosses. Yeah. 
and and if they terminate that agreement, what's the what's the process like? Uh, seems like instinctively, I would think it would be on for young and old if they try and push all of all of the uh, cube workers back onto the award. Well, it doesn't just become a, a cube members dispute. It doesn't just become an MUA dispute. It becomes uh, the actual the whole union movement hmm. dispute. So if they want to poke the bear, they'll get the bear. <laughs> and they'll get the bear in all its colours. Hmm. And there's no media that's going to control the bear. The bear's just going to roar. Hmm. And the bear, unfortunately, is only 15% of the workplace these days. The other 85% are sponging off the, the 15% that are union members. Hmm. And hopefully over time and hopefully with uh, a new government in the future and hopefully with uh, changing of the rules. You know, I had to sit in with a guy yesterday going through an unfair dismissal conciliation and um, I provided him with all the facts that's readily available on fair work and it shows you, you know, there's not a happy ending for... Um, if you're being sacked in the workplace. It's a long, drawn-out process. And one of the most recent guys at Cube, like 64 days it was before he found out that the company were terminating his employment from the time of the actual incident. Hmm. And it all, you know, when you've had 10% of the labour that's been uh, terminated over a two-year period after the expiry date of the agreement, not that that was a connection, um, so, and you've seen a lot of those members lose their jobs, um, not get their jobs back, um, we had one guy that actually won his case, uh, but um, the commission at the time said, well, based on the, the other other previous records, there's an expectation you might only be in the workplace for four months, and they valued his, um, his payout on that. So they wouldn't return to work. So again, that's another thing, unfair dismissal. It's poorly worded because um, in regard to the fair work, it should be unfair work, and hopefully in time that that culture in there changes because it's a lottery. You can get a great commissioner. You can get a favourable result based on facts. You get a dodgy commissioner or deputy vice president, whatever, um, you know, it's roulette. So mm. our position is we try and have those relationships with the employer so that we don't have people getting disciplined or sacked. You know, we've got no problem getting involved and going through a bit of a correction in behaviour because you can't defend the undefendable. But where there are companies that might do a cost analysis and what a redundancy might cost if we want to downsize our labour, and instead they choose to terminate uh, and start sacking employees, um, well, then something's wrong. And mm. that's where you have to change the rules. Mm. Indeed. And, um, yeah, speaking of changing the rules, I saw um, a, f- a Facebook status update from Sally McManus, and, uh, yeah, she cut her teeth back during the 98 dispute, so it's... Uh... It's funny how the environment creates individual, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it must be uh, good from your end to know that the head of the ACTU is someone who's, uh, you know, very much understands the... Well, she's lived it, she's breathed it, she's mm. seen what's gone on over the journey of her life, coming up through a delegate and through the channels up to where she is now. Um, you don't just end up in those positions by... Um, you know, lying in as a strike breaker and uh, being the next best thing in the employer's eyes, she's done, you know, she's probably done what every delegate does in the workplace. And every delegate, like I'm a union official, we're all delegates one time, but um, they're the voluntary workers of the union movement. You know, they don't get paid to do the work that they do, but they do it because they've got a moral compass and uh, they're generally trying to look after their mates. And that's what we like to think we raise in Australia. But um, obviously you get the bedwetters that become management and they just see it as control as well. So it's either or. Mm. 
All right. Well, um, thanks heaps for uh, speaking with us this morning. No and, worries. Uh, yeah, we'll keep an eye on this dispute because it's obviously pretty important that... Uh, it's likely going to escalate into a pretty uh, pretty big thing and yeah. grow bigger and bigger as we all watch the helicopters roll in. Well, you know, the penny might drop and we might have some people that are a little bit, you know, educated and just go, hang on, this is a quick fix. Why aren't we doing this? Mm. And if we can get those people on the other side of the table, this might be a memory in a short time. But if it's uh, got ulterior motives and it's there to either terminate the agreement, if it's there to actually run a media campaign leading up to the election, well, you know, you can't control that vested interest. Hmm. All righty. All right. Well, Time uh, yeah. for breaking and down to the picket. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that's Mirat, M-I-R-R-A-T. Google it, yep. Google Maps. Get along and uh, support the picket and support the uh, Wharfies. Yeah, and for the record, we haven't got a blue with Marat. Marat's basically caught in the middle here. Um, they're trying to be impartial, and if they move away from impartial, we'll have a conversation with them. But, um, yeah, so 46 Kiringaway, Port Melbourne, so it's just, the, you know, at the bottom of the Westgate Bridge, basically. Yeah, OK. All right. Nice Thank one. Thank you, guys. Good stuff. Yeah. Cheers, Jeff. Uh, already, yes, Jeff Hoy, the uh, Assistant Victorian Secretary of the MUA there, telling us a bit about the uh, CUBE dispute, uh, the, the dispute for CUBE workers down at Web Dock there. And uh, yes, it's very much not a nostalgic anniversary strike to commemorate the Patrick's dispute. This is a serious matter about, you know, people working insanely long shifts day after day, week after week, and... Uh, Yes, as you've heard. All right, so thank you very much to Jeff, and we'll play you an announcement, and then I think we're going to listen to the uh, the editor of Jacobin magazine. Uh, for um, Basically, this is an interview with Bashkir Sankari. Um, he is quite well known as the editor of the um, Jacobin magazine. Uh, the Jacobin magazine is a publication that he started when he was 21, um, and it's quite a you know a prominent uh, um, socialist magazine, uh, socialist publication in the United States, and you know it's kind of um, considered quite relevant and expired for its sort of New York Times styled you know covers. And um, so, yeah, he was speaking as part of the Marxism conference um, last weekend over the Easter, Easter weekend. And so, you know, we got the, um, Green Left Weekly got the opportunity um, to do a bit of an interview with him, um, which will be played here, um, where we talk to him about the Jacobin magazine and, you know, the, um, the state of the left in the United States, especially in the age of Donald Trump. So, yeah, nice. good. All right. Can you start off telling us a little bit about, um, just briefly, like the politics in America under Trump, like just the, the sort of the background in which you're working at the moment? Yeah, so basically I think there's been a kind of um, a breakdown, like in a lot of places, of the traditional dominant center-left and center-right uh, politics, or at least what's passed for center-left politics in the United States. As most people know, it's basically a, a, you know, a centrist politics at, at, at best. Um, but people are really looking for alternatives. They're fed up. They don't want to support either the establishments of either parties. And this kind of breakdown uh, led to the uh, very surprising support, unprecedented support for a uh, social democratic you know, uh, campaign from Bernie Sanders, quite a left campaign. Uh, but then also on the right, a support for Donald Trump. 
who was opposed very bitterly by every single part of the Republican uh, Party establishment. They've now had to reconcile themselves to him, obviously, but um, they, they fought him tooth and nail throughout the Republican primaries. So we had this, uh, this breakdown, and then the real question is, what's going to go forward? Can we uh, revive a kind of left populist option? Will Trump's way be kind of, uh, will be able to win hegemony? Because right now he only has support for maybe 35, 40% of the population. Or will the establishments kind of recompose and get back control of the situation in the next uh, two to four years? And it's still really undetermined. So I think that's, that's the main thing. No one can tell you what's going to happen next in US politics. It's, it's very, uh, very undetermined at the moment. Can you tell us about your organization, the Democratic Socialists of America? Yeah, so I'm a uh, member of the Democratic Socialists of America. I've been a member for uh, 10, 11 years. And um, more or less, we uh, came out of a anti-Stalinist left tradition. Um, we are, uh, many of the founders uh, came out of originally uh, Trotskyist kind of backgrounds or Shackmanite in particular uh, backgrounds. Um, but uh, the actual politics of the organization was a broad-based democratic socialism um, in the uh, 1980s and, and 90s. So in other words, they tended to relate to the left wing of socialist parties um, abroad. They had a little bit of sympathy for maybe Italian communism, but in general, it was like the left wing of Mitterrand's coalition or the left wing of the movement in Sweden, like uh, the LO fighting for the Minder plan or whatnot. Those were the um, international connections of, of DSA. Um, as it's grown over the past 10, 11 years, we've been able to radicalize it a bit more so it relates a little bit more closely with existing uh, far-left groups um, around the, the world. But um, it's a broad tent everywhere from kind of left social democrats to revolutionary um, socialists. Excuse me one second, just stand to adjust this. Yeah. <laughs> and that'll be... Action better. So just say again. Oh yeah, one, two, yeah, three. Okay. Yep. Sorry. No, Sorry no problem. Um, so then, tell us also about Jacobin Magazine and how you came to found that and what the aims of the magazine. Yeah. Is. So I founded uh, Jacobin when I was a um, undergraduate. I already was in the Democratic Socialist of America for a few years. I had, uh, you know, a set of politics, a group of people um, uh, around me, and it was more just the idea that. The left was so weak, um, we were having a very hard time breaking through um, organizationally. So instead, we would just go and try to propagandize around the ideas. Because essentially, if you're in a small group, you have to recognize the fact that a lot of what you're going to do is just propaganda and education, even if you have aspirations of doing something more. So it was kind of a, a holding action. In lieu of anything else to do, start a publication. And instead of just trying to win over arguments within the left, um, so part of our idea was win over arguments among uh, a left that was increasingly, especially in the student movement, was very anarchistic. Win over people to a more traditional Marxist politics, again. Um, try to make that politics fresh and vibrant so it just didn't seem like the old, stale, kitschy kind of uh, Soviet, Soviet stuff. Um, but also, on the other hand, to try to win over a new mass constituency around this politics. So um, I think a lot of people who self-identified as left liberals or as liberals in the United States in fact, were quite a bit more radical than that. They just never had a language to express it in a country without a uh, long-standing, very deep socialist tradition, or at least with a forgotten socialist tradition, a lost socialist tradition. So that was, that was more or less the, the idea. And today we have a circulation around 40,000. We have um, an online readership 
uh, but that's much, much um, higher than that. So, um, you know, it's been, it's been a successful, I think, especially at the second, um, the second part. And I do think we've kind of paved the way for some of the transformations we're seeing with the growth in like DSA from an organization when I joined of five, 6,000 people to now around 35,000 uh, people. Have Jacob and DSA always been linked, or? So we're not linked uh, officially. We're both we're independent. Uh, we work and collaborate with people in the international socialist organization, um, uh, in uh, U.S. socialist alternative, and a lot of, uh, in solidarity, especially um, the old um, uh, Fourth International um, uh, affiliate or Fourth International um, Observer um, in the United uh, from the United States. Uh, so. Uh, we tend to relate to a broad spectrum of the left, and our idea is to try to create tendencies and ideas across organizational boundaries, and not just be tied up with one organization, because the left is so small that even an organization the size of the DSA can't be the be-all, end-all, unifying kind of you know, party. We need, and even if it was, we would need factions and kind of uh, the ability to have internal disputes to actually evolve its politics. So I don't think DSA has the, the answer. I do think it could kind of be the broad, big tent in, into which we can do politics. So I wasn't aware of what you said. I was, I was going to ask you about sort of strategies for the left. And I wasn't aware the way you said it. It was almost like Jacobin was begun as like an argument against anarchism. Is that putting it too strongly? Well, I think it's two things. It was an intra-left argument, I think, in favor of a lot of, uh, I'd say, a more orthodoxy, not just for the sake of orthodoxy, orthodoxy because we thought it was right around certain things like the primacy of class, around the need for parties and organizations. Um, uh, the, the idea, at least, that we know we're very, very far away from a mass party, um, but we know that if we want to change the world, we have to actually take power and do it, right? This was kind of an era where a lot of the idea of the take, change the world without taking power kind of ideas was still very uh, prevalent. Um, and I think we kind of have seen a, swung, a swing where now the mainstream left is kind of uh, in the mentality of uh, let's just win elections. Um, so it's maybe been an overcorrection, but our stance is always, you know, if you want to make radical uh, change, you need to have a party, you need to have a role for uh, trade union work and, and all these things that seem very unglamorous, but I think uh, is the foundation for every single victory we've ever had for the last 120 years, be it reformist or revolutionary. Yeah, okay. Um, sorry, I was going to say what I was going to say. Um, Mm. Um, Jacob just asked about the mm -hmm. DSA has grown massively in size in the context of that. Well, I think you've already sort of said that a bit, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, uh, so I would say internally within the Democratic Socialists of America, a lot of the people weren't politicized before, and then all of a sudden, you know, there's been a, a leap into socialist politics. So people are still kind of getting their footing. They're still trying to understand the stakes of arguments, understand some of the history a bit better. And it is kind of difficult without a very deep, um, you know, tradition. It's hard because there's only a handful of people who really um, have the capability, let's say, to lay out theoretical arguments and whatnot. And we want more people to participate in it. So I think uh, one of our main tasks is political education and getting people really, um, you know, engaged with uh, thinking about ideas and not just um, perceiving the organization as a way to just do action. Obviously, action is important, but um, you know, we don't want people just really thrown into socialist politics for two years and burning themselves out, never coming back. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're trying to mix in, you know, a wide, wide variety of things.
the other question I was going to ask was about the whole um, Bernie Sanders and our revolution and so forth. Um, I mean, I've seen some kind of... I mean, I know Chelsea Manning is running in the Democratic primaries, and I don't know if she's associated with our revolution or not, but it sort of feels like I haven't seen very much of the sort of you know, radical leftists running, in, running as the, in the Democratic primaries. Right. So- in fact, it almost seems like the opposite, like the sort of... A lot of the Democratic primaries seem to be... Um, uh, yeah, more the pro-corporate so, so, so let's say in New York City we ran two different races. Um, they both got in the 30% kind of mark. Uh, one was as an independent against uh, the Democrat in the general election. One was against an incumbent Democrat but in a primary. Uh, so we have run, and there obviously, especially Social Alternative, the uh, CWI affiliate in the uh, United States, um, has had uh, very successful runs. They won, uh, as most people know, um, in Seattle with Samo Salant, you know, there's been uh, the um, uh, multiple campaigns in Minneapolis that have been quite successful. So there's been those um, breakthroughs, but that's a little bit different than what our revolution in the Democratic Party is trying to do. So you, um, there's, there's a tradition kind of of running for office to talk about socialism, to have an excuse to knock on someone's door and, and bring up issues like the $15 minimum wage or all, any sort of other, other issue. And that's kind of how I would relate to elections. Uh, then there's approach of our revolution, which is really, we need to get, get the bastards out. And we need to actually, you know, uh, run for everything from dog catcher to, um, to up to mayor and governor and so on and so on. And my particular stance is that I don't think this does particular harm. In other words, like, I think it'd be a good thing if, if the one batch of Democrats were out and we had a, a bunch of people who are left-wing, who are comfortable with um, dealing with socialists, even if they might not be socialists themselves. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it pushes the struggle forward. But I do think they're going to run into certain structural you know, uh, barriers, right? So I guess the, the trick or the dilemma is how do you not be aloof um, and how do you not just be hectoring and saying, you know, oh, you're going to fail? Uh, and because you obviously still want to engage with these people. But how do you differentiate uh, a socialist politics from this broader uh, Bernie crap uh, politics? So that's that's the dilemma. And I kind of want one foot in with the Bernie crats and the left wing of this kind of movement, but also to maintain um, a distinct vision of, um, you know, what a, a kind of working class radical politics would look like. Oh, I, I think that in general, uh, things are not maybe as bleak as they might seem in the United States. Uh, if you look at what a lot of young people, for example, think about immigration, if you look at um, just the general uh, direction that things are moving in uh, at a social and cultural level, I think um, it's quite a bit, you know, it's, things are somewhat favorable to the left. Um, and even on a policy issue, uh, our key uh, policy platform, the thing we've been working on the most within Democratic Social America is around Medicare for all. Uh, I think we have a real potential to win a kind of socialized uh, a medical system in the United States in the next 10 years or so. And um, that would mean one-sixth of the, the largest economy in the world um, being um, you know, turned over from uh, a private kind of sector into a, something oriented towards public need. And I think once people see um, the functioning um, a system like that, they'll start to demand more of the government, demand more of the state, and I think that'll you know, move things in a, in a progressive and good direction uh, for, for us. So I am uh, cautiously optimistic about the next uh, several years. Okay. Hi. Right. So that was um, Bashkir Sun 
Sankari um, from um, the Jacobin magazine who um, was interviewed um, during the Marxism conference. Yeah, and apologies for some of the <coughs> audio there. Some of the questions from the interviewer were uh, difficult to hear, so hopefully you're able to sort of um, uh, extrapolate what uh, what was being discussed with each uh, response there. Hmm. But yeah, if you just Google Jacobin, you can check out that uh, publication if you haven't seen it before. So uh, they've got some real good stuff there. Hmm. All right, um, so now we're getting, it's 8.03, and we're getting ready to um, go right into the activist calendar. Actually, maybe we'll just play a quick announcement and then move into the activist calendar just to give a bit of a breather. indeed do You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday morning breakfast show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Alrighty, welcome back. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. It is five minutes past eight. We are running a little bit behind time. It is time for the activist calendar. Right. So um, for the activist calendar, um, tomorrow um, will be a protest uh, uh, standing up for Palestine at Saturday, 2 p.m. at the State Library. Um, As mentioned in the show earlier, this is in response to um, the um, the you know brutal attack by Israel on the peaceful protests that occurred in Gaza over the Holy Day on the Easter weekend. Um, there'll be Friday uh, uh, six well tonight, the sixth of April. There will be a a concert, High Tension, um, which is sort of about um, you know related to kind of the Indonesian kind of struggle around. Uh, the kind of anti-communist kind of purge, and so that will be happening at 8 p.m. at the Gasometer Hotel, 484 Smith Street in Collingwood. Um, on Saturday, tomorrow, April 7th, there'll be uh, the Political Science Farewell Show um, at the Supper Room at 11 p.m. at Melbourne Town Hall. I'm not sure if tickets are sold out at this point, just so quickly just search up Political Science Farewell Show and you might find out whether tickets are available. On Sunday, um, the West Papuan office will be having an open day from 1 to 4pm, and that is at 838 Collins Street in the city. On Saturday, April 14th, um, there'll be a forum, Indonesia Today, Stable Disconnect um, Content and the Challenge for Radical Politics, Um, and they'll be at 3pm Saturday, the 14th of April at the New International Bookshop. On Tuesday, April the 17th, um, there will be a public forum um, after Afrin, What's Next for the Sy- um, Northern Syria Democratic um, Feminist Revolution? Um, and they will feature Hojin um, Aziz. Uh, I don't know how to it. Hojin Aziz. Aziz, um, who um, will be really linking directly from Kobani and um, Dave Holmes. And that will be at April. Tuesday, April 17th, uh, 6.30pm at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street. Um, And there'll also be another forum happening on that same time um, on what the Australian Greens should be about, um, organised by the New International Bookshop at Trades Hall, um, and that's at 7pm on Tuesday, April the 17th. 
Um, on Thursday, April the 9th, um, there'll be a memorial and forum about um, demanding justice for Josh. Um, Josh was an 18-year-old who tragically died at his government-approved work for the Dole site in Toowoomba. Um, and so that will be, uh, you know, Minister of Employment um, Michaela Cash um, promised to conduct an investigation and to publish a report within a month. And two years on, we are still waiting for answers. And that's at 2 p.m. the Melbourne Utilitarian Peace Memorial Church at 110 Gray Street in East Melbourne. And it's hosted by the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. On Thursday, the April the 19th, um, there'll be a toxic-free Faulkner film screening and fundraiser um, with the documentary The Green Chain, which tells the story of small mill workers in New Zealand that were poisoned by the same type of chemicals where they, that were produced at a new farm site. And, of course, and so basically this is a film screen to help raise funds for the upcoming re- recat case and future campaigns. And uh, that will be at 7.30pm at Faulkner Primary School, 40 Lawn Street. Um, and most importantly, there'll be a rally um, to change the rules um, happening at on Wednesday, the 9th of May, 10am, outside Shreds Hall. And at Saturday, May the 12th, there'll be the Victorian Socialist Campaign launch at 7pm at the Grace Darling Hotel, 114 Smith Street in Collingwood. Woot, woot, I tell you. Yes. All right, what's uh, what's happening next? Um, okay, I we can I have a qu- maybe a quick news story I kind of want to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, quite um, a bit sad news, um, but it's by it's basically the recent passing of uh, Japanese um, filmmaker um, Isio um, Takiyada, um, who is one of the founders of um, a studio that probably many of our listeners know of uh, Studio Gilba. Uh, the same animation studio that made um, films like Spirited Away, Nadagaska, uh, and um, Castle in the Sky. Um, so, yeah, Isio Takiyada passed away um, yesterday in hospital at the age of 82. And he's known as, like, the other filmmaker besides um, Hayao Miyazaki. Um, many people typically associate um, Studio Gilba with um, Hayao Miyazaki, um, but Isio Takiyada was also another, you know, brilliant filmmaker in the studio who is, you know, was well known for um, making films um, such as uh, Only Yesterday, Grave of the Fireflies, uh, Fireflies, Pompoko, um, and you know, just like uh, Miyazaki, a lot of his films were infused, you know, with very progressive themes and politics. Uh, in fact, Towers of Princess Kagura, which is a film which was his last film before his death, really, you know, can be kind of described as like a kind of, as a you know a feminist sort of retelling of a classic Japanese folklore tale um, that it obviously is portraying quite a patriarchal world, and so that was one of the. Uh, so it's very sad passing at um, the age of eighty-two, and you know a very brilliant filmmaker. You know who anyone who's listening should um, would owe themselves to check out uh, his work. Um, another news article I kind of want to talk about is you know there was a recent survey kind of re- released um, that you know pol- about politics, and it's basically a recently released trends in Australian political opinion, um, which were 
you know, results uh, which shows the kind of longer lasting trends in public opinion rather than polling snapshots. Um, this re- the research is based on the Australian election study post election result. Uh, election surveys of opinions using the same methodology. You know, surveys drawn randomly from the electoral register. It claims to present the most sophisticated and exhaustive set of data ever collected in Australia on the dynamics of political behaviour. While some of the questions are ambiguous, it nevertheless makes for interesting reading. Um, And so what the kind of trend is kind of showing is that, you know, there's an increasing trend of more people identifying with um, left-wing politics. In fact, you know, there's Statistically, there's more people who identify as being left-wing than they identify as right, with the majority, I think, uh, identifying themselves as the centre. Um, it also shows that there's kind of like a sense of... It demonstrates there's sort of a sense of alienation from the major parties. Uh, it also shows that, you know, many are still thinking on about the issues um, that matter and they do not, you know, get involved in the political process. And I guess... Sort of the analysis coming from these results is for a lot of younger people, a lot of young people are voting on the basis of policy um, and politics, not necessarily based on party affiliation or party loyalty. And so basically they're making up their minds on the, about the issues they, and parties they support rather than following, you know, family or kind of traditional tribalism. And of course, interests in politics has risen, even if this interest does not necessarily translate to pop numbers on the street. Um, of course, you know, these results also demonstrate um, show there's demonstratedly less interest in the traditional parties of government, as I kind of mentioned before, and of course there is ongoing interest in the Greens. And of course, despite the huge mainstream media promotion, there's really only a slight interest in One Nation. Um, so I guess, you know, this is um, a lot of this kind of um, you know news and of the survey is um, quite promising. And another kind of thing is there's also um, some results that show that fewer people are satisfied with um, fewer people were satisfied with democracy and more not satisfied with democracy compared to the results in 1969. Um, more people believe in governments. Um, but they are fewer believe they can be trusted. Slightly more, 56% believe government is run for a few big interests compared to 1998, which is sort of an increase of 3%. Um, about the same number, 12% believe it is run for all the people. Fewer believe that who you vote for will make a difference. Um, and of course, today, 74% um, you know, in this kind of survey of results and research uh said that big business had too much power compared with 1967 um, results, which said 60%. And, of course, fewer people say the unions have too much power, perhaps as more identify as working or middle class. Um, Union membership is on decline, and after years of mainstream bashing, those saying that unions have too much power is on the rise, 55%, although not at its 1999 um, zero level, which was at 68%. All right, so that's sort of um, a bit of the kind of analysis of some of these results that came of a political survey that came recently. Um, and in this article by Pip Hinman, she kind of analyzes, you know, there is, you could probably make an argument there is a bit of a left wing wide shift. And I guess you could argue that, you know, this is a kind of consequence of decades of bipartisan neoliberal attacks. And it is surely a good thing that so many seem to be identify, seem to be able to identify that the system is broken. 
All right. Um, I think we should talk a little bit about the Stolen Wealth Games. Mm. Uh, we we're going to try and interview someone. We haven't quite been able to get that um, live interview lined up, but we can give you some uh, reports. So Friday, April uh, 6th, update from Camp Freedom. Camp is growing day by day with buses rolling in and people flying in from all over. There's a call out for anyone in Brisbane, Gold Coast area who has a generator to lend the camp or if anyone wants to hire another one for us, send us a direct message. So, um, yeah, if you're listening in Melbourne, you've got friends up in Brizzy who might have a spare generator. Uh, yeah, do a bit of legwork and see if you can hook them up. Uh, that, that seems like it's still a current uh, request for a generator. Uh, an account here, deadly first day at Camp Stolenworth. Stolen wealth, we blocked and stopped the baton relay. We also stood our group in the face of thousands of police in the pouring rain. We have more actions over the next nine or ten days. All mob invited. See you on the front line. And for updates, you can uh, look at War Collective, uh, Warriors, Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance Collective. Look them up on, on Facebook, W-A-R Collective, one word. Uh, search for hashtags... No justice, no games, not the Queen's land, keep the fire burning, stolen wealth games, colonisation is not a game, stolen wealth, Ospol, Gold Coast, not the Queen's land. Uh, and for many Aboriginal people, the Commonwealth Games represents the continuing legacy of settler colonialism in this country, so they're an important opportunity to raise unresolved issues on the world stage, like treaty the colonial project is still alive and well in this country and Aboriginal people bear the brunt of this in the increasing rates of child removal, the over-representation of Aboriginal people in jails, life expectancy gaps, homelessness, poverty and violence. The list is long. Basically, this is about boycotting a sporting event rather than celebrating ongoing imperialism, colonialism and genocide. It's an act of resistance against the hypocrisy of a white Australia that rolls out homage to Aboriginal culture during these events while continuing to devalue Aboriginal people and lands. So, yeah, um, check it out. Uh, you, can, you can follow and, and show your solidarity with those uh, stolen, stolen Wealth Games actions. And I'll just look up a bit of... Um, I do believe we've also got some audio uh, of some of the protest actions there. So I'll just play an announcement and see if I can, yeah, get this audio happening so we can, yeah, get a bit of a bit more of a insight into what's been going on up in Brisbane there. All right, you're back. Uh, it is 19 minutes past eight. You're listening to Greenleaf Radio on... 3CR, and we have got a daily update uh, for today. So this is some uh, coverage of the protests that happened at the Stolen Wealth Games yesterday up in Brisbane, the uh, big protests against this carnival of colonial settler state imperialist rubbish. All right, check it out. They don't actually know what's actually happening in this world. They can't know how we live. They don't see it on a daily basis. They're not confronted with it. There's many common things that we have with other Indigenous, indigenous nations. 
the first thing is that colonial history. But the second and most important thing is that history of resistance. History of survival. History of always coming back and fighting and fighting. And that's why we're here today. To continue to fight. We're on the front line. We say no justice. 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 We got word that the Queen's Van Relay was coming past here and around Doug Jennings Park. So we, we all gathered and decided on a mutual ground that, we'd want, to, that we want to stop this button from going through. And that's exactly what we did. And we decided to take a peaceful track. We decided to be, you know, we didn't want to cause any violence or hurt anybody. But what we decided to do was sit ourselves on the road and give, our, give the, those who came to participate a little bit of a history lesson, a little bit of an awareness lesson, and just tell them really why we're here, and just tell this mob that we're here to make a, make a change and bring awareness, and we're going to be here for the next 10 days doing the exact same thing. We live. No games! No justice! No games! No justice, no games, 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 no justice, no All right, a few updates there from uh, Camp Freedom slash Camp, aka Camp Stolen, or Stolen Welks, up in uh, Brisbane, Brisbane, protesting against a uh, carnival of colonialism happening. Uh, you know, while well, there's unresolved treaty business on on stolen land. So, yeah, keep uh, keep listening to three CR because there'll be ongoing coverage of those uh, protests that are happening up there over the next uh, nine or ten days. Uh, All right. Now, just as we kind of wrap up the uh, Friday breakfast show for another week, and before we go to Beyond Zero, I would be keen to hear from you, Jacob. I was not able to make it to Marxism Conference, Mm. but uh, how was it? Yeah, I'll give a general kind of overview report. Um, Yeah, I generally thought the conference was quite... um, you know, it was quite good. Um, generally, Marxism is really the biggest kind of radical left conference um, that's uh, put out by Socialist Alternative, uh, well, put up generally by the left every year um, and, you know, attracted over 800 people. I mean, I didn't see 800 people all <laughs> there at once, but, you know, that that was um, the statistics that there were over 800 people tickets sold. Um, in terms of different um, sessions, they had a really good session on, you know, Palestinian solidarity and Palestinian rights by uh, a prominent um, Palestinian activist in the United States who we played her, uh, I did an interview with her last week. Um, 
you know, Bashkir Sankari, who we just interviewed um, just before, you know, gave a great, um, you know, gave a great presentation on the politics in the age of Trump in the United States. Uh, we also had uh, some, you know, a good session um, around, you know, Tamil refugees and self-determination um, hosted by the Tamil Refugee Council. And then we had, you also had the, uh, what, what was more exciting sessions was uh, the intra, um, the Victorian Socialist ses- um, session, um, you know, with Stephen Jolly, Sue Bolton, Colleen Bolger, all the free candidates giving some, you know, great talks that got, you know, people really kind of excited for the camp- um, the state election campaign in 2018, November 2018, which, you know, that was all great. Uh, and also there was also quite a good um, presentation by a uh, a socialist based in Barcelona in Spain. I unfortunately wasn't able to make his session on Catalonia, but I did make his, um, his session on Podemos and the state of the radical left in Spain, where he kind of gave a kind of good kind of overview of, you know, radical the radical kind of left politics scene and the limitations of Podemos as a political force, um, which I thought was all very interesting. Yeah, can you tell us? Uh, you were telling me a bit uh, this morning on the way to the studio about that. Yeah, what, what's what's in a nutshell? Well, the the basic um, limitation um, that he kind of argued about Podemos is Podemos is not really a proper party in a sense. It's almost it's apparently less democratic than some social democrat um, democratic parties. Hmm. Uh, like say the Labor Party in Australia would be considered more democratic than Podemos uh, because Podemos is almost like a loose network. Um, around that whose kind of political project is basically you know it's kind of a populist kind of message of standing up against the establishment and so because of that and you know the general kind of level of radicalization in Spain in fact there's a very high level of radicalization and politicization that's happening in Spain and that's evident in the fact that they had a 6.7 million women strike on international women's day uh, yeah, that clearly Podemos is drawing in thousands of people, you know, they're getting elected positions, but the problem is they're not, they're very uh, a lecturous kind of elf outfit. They're not really organising people, you know, to participate in social movements, not really organising people to, you know, uh, you, you know, strengthen grassroots movements, which is where this speaker, who's part of the anti-capitalistas, who, which is actually a faction within Podemos, although at this point, I think anti-capitalista might be... Um, exiting out of Podemos, but that's sort of the interaction because Anti-Capitalista, which is a socialist kind of organisation within Podemos, was trying to push this kind of direction of actually, you know, using Podemos as a bit of a, you know, a platform to, you know, draw people into radical politics and also to basically play the role of galvanising and mobilising people for social movements. Hmm. But of course, the problem is the sort of, Leadership and sort of the structures of Podemos were really geared in a very electrical kind of basis, um, and not really sort of playing a role of you know supporting you know struggle as it happened. Uh, and of course, anti-capitalists also faced quite a bit of backlash as well um, because they were faction within Podemos, and so. There was also some interesting insights of the fact that anti-capitalists managed to get sort of elected MPs um, through being part of Podemos. And, you know, the lesson is it was definitely, for anti-capitalists, it was definitely worth being part of Podemos for all its contradictions and problems because basically it was the first opportunity they ever got to interact with a larger layer of people uh, in about politics um, that, you know, the traditional left has never been able to kind of engage with mm. and uh in 
really a radical left kind of currents. Um, I guess another thing interesting is um, Podemos was apparently not really that tied to sort of the youth movement in Spain. Um, in fact, they seem to be attracting more people in their sort of late 20s to kind of mid-40s, that kind of generation of people, which I thought was interesting to hear. Because not that there's anything wrong with that age Not that anything wrong, but it's just like in the context of <laughs> yeah, Corbyn not, and um, like Bernie a, Sanders, um, which were clearly attracting lots mm. of youth. Yeah, Podaris is yeah. a bit different. And, and, it doesn't and I guess that layers. as we're seeing in the United States, that, that dy- the dynamism of youth has the, the power to really uh, shake politics to its core with the, uh, the, um, yeah, the movement for to ban assault weapons or get better gun control so there's not randoms walking around with AR-15s. All right, well, um, that's cool. We've got to uh, wrap it up. Um, Yes, thank you for listening to Green Left Radio once again and stick around for Beyond Zero Emissions.